Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About suffrage. About working in a London fog. About journalism and other forms of writing. About how to really take care of your clothes if you can only afford one pair. It's about that thing with clothes a lot. (laughs) A lot, a lot. It's about finding love. It's about finding love again. It's about finding love again again. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week we are reading Behind These Doors by Jude Lucen. Do you want to read the about the book? Back of the book. Lucian Saxby is a journalist writing for the Society Pages. The Honorable Aubrey Fanshaw, second son of an earl, is society. They have nothing in common until a casual encounter leads to a crisis. Aubrey isn't looking for love. He already has it in his long-term clandestine relationship with Lord and Lady Herondale. And Lucian is the last man Aubrey should want. He's a commoner raised in service, socially unacceptable. Worse, he writes for a disreputable gossip-hungry newspaper. Aubrey can't afford to trust him when arrest and disgrace are just a breath away. Lucian doesn't trust knobs. Painful experiences (laughs) taught him that working people simply don't count to them. Years ago, he turned his back on a life of luxury so his future wouldn't depend on an aristocrat's whim. Now, thanks to Aubrey, he's becoming entangled in the risky affairs of the upper classes, antagonizing people who could destroy him with a word. Aubrey and Lucian have too much to hide and too much between them to ignore. Rejecting the strict rules and closed doors of Edwardian society might lead them both to ruin. But happiness and integrity like demand it oh happiness and integrity like that's a really good back of the book that is an excellent back of the book it was accurate first of all love it when they're accurate it never derailed Mm. it didn't gesture as much towards the fact of polyamory in this text though did it not as much yeah not as much as you would expect fans have been asking us to do a polyamorous romance for a long time and i think it's because isabeau and i do talk about the concept a lot neither of us are well i don't want to speak for you not polyamorous but i do not practice polyamory in my own personal life but i did read the book the ethical slut Mm -hmm. and i found it to be like a super liberating helpful way to think about relationships Mm -hmm. that was really important to me and after i read it i talked about it all the time as isabeau may recall i do and it was just so eye-opening and it was just like stuff I needed to hear like your central romantic relationship isn't the most important relationship in your life all of your relationships are equally important with your friendships with your family members with your work colleagues like everything deserves work care it's unfair to prioritize things based on just like the nature of the relationship which was really a great thing for me to read I would also recommend the ethical slut I think it's super dated (laughs) but we did used to talk about it a lot at the beginning and so people wanted us to do a poly romance and we got some great recommendations and we just covered Katrina Jackson she's a writer who does a lot of polyamory erotica too which is really fun and good old Joanna Patenkis on Instagram recommended Behind These Doors by Jude Lucens. we got quite a few recommendations thank you to everyone who submitted on our Instagram recommendations for when we started this project yeah thanks for bringing this into our life I'm really glad that we started with historical polyamory because I think that's like the parts that feel educational felt more natural in the educational space of like well you've never thought about it because we're living in a closed lip society that like doesn't do this so I was like I didn't feel as lectured to as I might have had those dialogues monologues soliloquies been in contemporary that's so insightful and brilliant (laughs) That's exactly right. Like, I really struggle with those, like, after-school special contemporaries that are like, this is how consent works, but I don't notice it in historicals. And I think you're right. It's because, like, of course you have to explain it in a historical because we don't have, like, that framework. Yeah. For, like, people in, you know, spats. (laughs) 
knowing about polyamory. Right. Or like jodhpurs, you know, like if you're wearing jodhpurs, you might need to have somebody like explain polyamory to you and ethical monogamy, non-monogamy. Yeah. Like the characters have to explain it to each other and it feels less preachy. Mm -hmm. Although I will say this book would also be, I think, a pretty great guideline if you were wondering what polyamory was about or or really ethical non-monogamy, how it looks, the different ways it can function, what it means to different people, what like hangups and challenges of it are. Mm -hmm. This book was really effective in that way. I think so too. So I think we should get started with our two main-ish characters, although we have we have quite a cast. Yeah. I was really curious starting this off how like a romance novel would handle non-monogamy as far as like having a central love story. Mm-hmm. Katrina Jackson, the books that I've read by her do include three people falling in love, or at least in lust at once. Mm-hmm. But this book, there is a central duo to the plot. Mm-hmm. So our first character that we meet is Aubrey Fanshaw. Second son of an earl. He's a nice knob. He's got a really nice apartment and a really cool, chill valet named Greaves. And he is out with a lord and lady, Herondale, who are his longtime lovers. They're a thruple. They've been together for years and years. He and Rupert started that relationship when they were quite young at Eton. And Henrietta came about into their love life. They decided to be a threesome, but she could only marry one of them because it's Edwardian England. It's uh, 1906. The Oscar Wilde trials have just happened. And so that's fresh in everybody's minds. Anyway, they're all at the opera or show or whatever. And a very handsome young man taps on the door and is flirting with Lady Herondale and then catches Aubrey's eye and makes massive eyes at him. And then there's this adorable little scene where like he leaves the handsome young man. And then Aubrey looks at Lord and Lady Lady Herndale and he's like, well, he was handsome. And they're like, go after him. Go get him. Like, like, go. And he's like, do you think I should? And they're like, yes, he obviously wants you to. And so then like he does and he follows him into the night and they uh, strike up a romance. Yeah. So ever since the beginning of Aubrey and Rupert's relationship, Aubrey has had other sexual partners, including at Eaton. Uh, that's an aspect of this novel. It does follow the like actual like naming etiquette and like how you talk to people of Edwardian times. It does. Yeah, and so it gets a little choppy. So Rupert is Lord Herndale, but he's not asexual, but sex isn't one of the main ways that he expresses affection. And so it's always been understood that Aubrey would have other partners, including Henrietta, and they've all been having sex with each other in some form for as long as they've known each other. So we meet Lucian Saxby. He's the handsome man. He's the handsome man, but he's not described as handsome in the novel. He's rather plain looking, but Aubrey really likes him, which I loved. The other thing, if you have a bingo card that says hero who is short, that would be Lucian. Lucian is small of stature. Yeah. At one point, he's described as being like Henrietta's height. And I was like, yeah. oh, man, he is shorty. Yeah. Well, there's also times where he was like a little too short to kiss his neck. So he just kissed his chest instead. Also, like the fact that he's small isn't just like something that's like waved away as like a wind musical trait, you know, like they don't say he's elfin. They're like, he's shorter. And like, he lives life as a short person. Yeah, he lives life as a short person. Without being like, he was so petite. It was so sexy. Yeah. What heroines often endure whenever they're small. It's like, it's true. They're like, oh, no boy likes me because I'm small. And the boy is like, I love you because you're small. I could put you in my pocket. It's like, you're disgusting. Yeah, you're sickening. But I think like this book actually like not only is going to check off that bingo square for you for a short hero, it's also going to show you how to write about shorter heroines (laughs) without being condescending or weirdly um, pedophilic, which a lot of those descriptions are. So Lucian is wearing his dinner clothes instead of his evening attire at the theater. And so that kind of tips them off that there's a class difference. And you would be correct if you read into that. Lucian, it turns out after he ends up back at Aubrey's apartments. <gasps> he is a gossip columnist for the Daily Mail. For the Daily Mail. Society writer, rather. Pardon me, but... So good. So good for the Daily Mail. I didn't know the Daily Mail was old. Super old. 
A lot of those are, frankly. And Aubrey immediately gets upset and cautious because the shadow of Oscar Wilde's trial is deep in him. And he also has a very intense bullying and abuse in his past that was at times physical, but mostly manifested as humiliation, like public humiliation. And so he's acutely afraid of the power that he has just given Saxby. But of course, Saxby's like, chill, dude. <laughs> like, I have a lot to lose here, too. So like, I would never betray your trust. And we get our first sex scene 5% of the way through the novel. And it's steamy. Yep. Bing, bang, boom. It's open doors. Very steamy. I mean, it's closed doors, but it's an open door sex scene, meaning very detailed. There's this really sad moment where they're just crying together and they just met, which was overwhelming for me as a third person in the room. I'm glad that you brought that up. This sex scene was incredibly steamy, but like, boy, there's a tonal shift. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally. And like the tonal shift is like both the fear and the shame that Aubrey immediately feels upon learning about Saxby's job. And then like the work that Saxby does to try to reassure him. And then Aubrey still wants him. So then like his crying is all wrapped up in like this fear shame spiral that was like insane to read. And then to immediately go into this like very sexy sex scene was frankly bewildering tonally. I felt overwhelmed. And I think as like an author move to put a reader on their left foot is an interesting choice right off the bat to like make a reader uncomfortable, especially with a sex scene like that. And because the hits keep rolling because the next morning there's this awful scene where. Oh, my gosh. Aubrey's in bed listening to Saxby pee in the water closet and he's like and there's gonna be this smell and it's not my own urine and I was like we're talking about urine a second after we've just had a sex scene like where am I? Yeah and like also being like kind of grossed out by the person you just had sex with the morning after and feeling like so uncomfortable with them. You just had sex with and so real and so like then there's this scene where like Aubrey's trying to like clean himself but he doesn't want to share the water basin with Saxby so then he's like giving off these like awful shame vibes and like making Saxby feel ashamed of himself even though he's like really owning his sexuality and he's like why are you like doing this and Aubrey's like you gotta go you've gotta leave the fact that the sex scene comes so early in the novel that definitely felt like as a reader a bit more voyeuristic part of the pleasure of reading romance is identifying with the main characters and experiencing that pleasure of discovery and even a pleasure of erotics mm-hmm. uh, vicariously through them. I was able to like appreciate the sex scene for being very steamy. I just wasn't fully connected at that point. Being a voyeur isn't one of my particular tipples. So I was a little bit like, ah, ooh, ooh. and it was made all the worse by the next morning. <laughs> just like, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, oh, you're very much a voyeur, but now you also have the insight to know that this guy is actually weirded out because of the pee smell. Yeah. Not like anything else. Now you know what he's grossed out by. Yeah. We kind of return to this, but there's something like whenever people have had sex and they won't share drinks and stuff like that, like he doesn't want to share his water basin. It's like you had his like ejaculate in your mouth. Like Now you're like, I don't want to wash in the same bath waters. Yeah. And the tone that you just took is both the tone that the book takes and like the tone that Saxby correctly picks up on and is offended by and then leaves like he's like, all right, I'm not fucking talking to you again and then he gets to work and Lady Herondale's idiot awful brother has written a letter to his boss to Saxby's boss saying that he was overly familiar with this countess and he should be fired and so then Saxby is forced to then interact again with this person that made him feel bad and like ask for help It's like part of this book, I don't know if it's because it's like Edwardian etiquette or if it's like all of the main characters except for Saxby, like all of the well-to-do characters are, well, except for maybe Henrietta, are like socially inept because Lucian goes to Aubrey's house. I don't want to make this more confusing for... (laughs) 
listeners. The journalist goes to Aubrey's house and he makes this request. And Aubrey's like, sure, I'm going to dinner with them. You just wait here. Which like does not make sense to me. Like the book doesn't really explain it either. But Aubrey's like, of course, um, Lucian is like, okay, like my whole livelihood is at stake here. I guess I'll just do what you say. And then like we meet Grieve, who is Aubrey's valet. Valet. Lucian was trained to be a valet. His father was a valet before him. You know, when Isabel was reading the back of the book, he really wanted to get out of that status fueled world. And that's why he became a journalist, a reporter. But he always has these like hang ups about like coming across as a knob, even though that's like absolutely the reason he has the job he has. He like has a lot of like worker sol- class solidarity and worker solidarity. But he also expresses it in obnoxious ways that he should know are obnoxious. It's like when people like really want to help their server. That's what I kept thinking of. And they just make it harder. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and just make it weirder and more like they're overly friendly. And like one of the things that's like, I think so deft about this book is that like we get a scene later where Greaves is like, don't make this harder for either of us. Like I don't look down on my own work. So like having you be this way makes me feel a way. So like stop it. Cause there's this scene cause like Greaves works downstairs. So he's like, don't set your foot on that stair. Yeah. There's a delineation. Like don't fucking cross it. Oh, he was like, I'm going to go downstairs and make myself tea. Yeah. And like Greaves is like, don't guy like don't also I didn't even think about this but like of course apartment complexes in the Edwardian era had an upstairs and a downstairs as well as far as like a service which would have been I think pretty fun it sounds like you know summer camp ish you live with all of the other valets bachelor's second sons and their valets yeah very funny yeah um so anyway like aubrey goes to his longtime paramours the herondales explains the situation henrietta is of course very upset that her interfering brother has interfered again they all decide that they're gonna take lucian the journalist on socially so that he's seen with them in society he'll have access to them both for his stories but also for his reputation and for his boss, who is cowed by their titles. And they just do this because A, they want to make it right, but B, they understand that like Lucien is becoming more important to Aubrey. So then Aubrey comes home and he explains, he's like, it's going to be great. They're going to invite you out and we're going to do all this stuff together. And he's like, they're going to what? Like, they just could write a letter. And he's like, no, they feel like they're going to do this. And so then like Saxby is immediately sort of like, I guess I have to do the things and like be with them socially, which is also like this book handles all of those moves I again like they're very weird and like people act like they're weird that's what I really appreciated about Lucian's reaction to all of this where he's like this feels outsized I don't understand what's happening and like because he's not privy to yet the mechanizations behind how close the Herondales are with Aubrey so like all of that felt good and interesting to read I agree like the book does feel conscientious and there are lots of ancillary characters who kind of provide pressure and also legitimize like your concerns as a reader. The fact that Lucian and Aubrey, as they get hotter and heavier, Lucian's colleague um, points out, she's like, oh, I, I know that you're fucking this guy. Not to like put him on the spot because she tells him like, I also have same sex proclivities. But she, you know, points out like they're not being particularly subtle or careful. Right. Which that chicken does come home to roost in a weird way. There is one character who I don't think gets a lot of pushback. And I I am confused by that in Rupert Herndale. Yeah, Rupert, his functionality is interesting to me in a couple of ways, right? Like, I think I've read exactly one other romance with a demisexual character, like somebody who is not as interested in sex as others and how that works in terms of other partners who have different and varying libidos and like what that means in terms of their like emotional landscapes and like how people are like working in and through that. Like I thought that was a good use of one of the aspects of Rupert's character. Also the fact that, you know, Aubrey has this really nasty history at school and that Herondale has used his status as uh, an Earl to shield 
Aubrey for most of Aubrey's life. Like as soon as Herondale came into his majority, he's been doing the work of putting down ugly rumors and making sure that like Aubrey's okay and like using his status as like a cloak and a shield. But like it's his status then that makes him blind to the ways in which he dictates all the terms. The problem I had with Rupert and his dictatorial style, which is part of the crisis of the book, is that nobody had ever talked to him about it before. And it felt weird to me that it wouldn't have come up, especially with Henrietta, his suffragette wife. So like it felt weird that like this was the crisis and this is when it happened. I don't know. There were parts of it that like Rupert felt very, and this is going to be a weird uh, reference, felt very Miss of Avalon Arthur, just sort of a little bit hapless, but like also has too much power over the people that he loves. And like, that's a weird combination. Yeah, it is. He's hapless and he has a lot of power over the people he loves. And I think the other aspect of that is that the people he loves also don't realize that. But at every turn, people are justifying like he's a great husband who like doesn't feel the need to like jealously possess his lover. And then he does. And he's like, well, I was always kind of okay with you. Like I said, this book is very illuminating on like issues you might encounter in a polyamorous relationship where he's like, well, I mean, I'm her husband. So I of course get priority here. I'm the last and the first word here, guy. Yeah, exactly. And he's always had that conscientiousness and is jealous of that power and control in the fact that like he is exerting it at all without having a conversation first, which comes up when Loden, Henrietta's brother, writes another letter to Rupert saying, I think that Henrietta is having an affair with Lucy and Saxby. And you need to check your girl. Yeah, and murmurs have started to re-arise about Aubrey as well. And so he wants to head off this issue at the pass. And he's like, okay, so we're ending our sexual relationship, our romantic relationship. And he tells Henrietta to tell him, like, there's no conversation, except whenever it's forced later on in the novel by Aubrey. Yeah, which was really deflating. I think, like, the conversation between Aubrey and Rupert about Rupert being dictatorial was interesting, but it's like, Saxby's the one who's like, you have to tell him that he's doing this and like Henrietta didn't even have the really the language because she's like I'm just owned by both of you but like more so him like I'm dead in the eyes of the law which certainly comes up in the suffragette novels that we read also continues to be really upsetting but like the fact that Rupert was so comfortable making a decision for the thruple without talking to either of the other two parties and that like both of them were just gonna let it go at that was kind of crazy Yeah, and that is not ethical monogamy. I mean, I don't know. Is it? Because like if it works for you, it works for you. I don't know. But it wasn't going to work for Henrietta and Aubrey because like they hadn't had the conversation. So no, it was unethical. Right. So there are a lot of pans on a lot of different fires in this novel. So we do have the like polyamorous relationship. We also have the on the down low homosexual relationship. And then we also have the like class warfare aspect of this. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the suffragette like votes for women movement going on as well as like gender dynamics uh, come into play as well in this novel. So it, it never felt overwhelming to me, but it did feel like maybe we could drop one of these storylines. I think that's right in the sense that like I was never overwhelmed and like the moments that I thought it really lived into itself was like if it wasn't a fully realized storyline. There's this thing that Saxby Lucian says because Aubrey goes to his house because he's heartbroken because Rupert has done this thing and like cut him off of his romantic relationship with Henrietta and himself. So he shows up at Lucian's boarding house and they have this like very weird conversation that's public before they can go in private where Aubrey can unburden himself, where he's talking about Lucian's land lady. Yeah. And like why she's bringing up trays and he's like, so she doesn't have to heat the room. And he's like, well, is she working alone? He's like, no, she has a daughter. And he's like, well, where is she? Like your landlady seems so burdened. And he's like, she works downstairs because she serves five men here. And like, that's a dangerous ask in these times because as a landlady and as the daughter of the landlady, people get handsy and violent. And like that casual sort of unblinkering of Aubrey, like this reminder 
that like a working people have it hard and they make financial decisions all the time. Like they're constantly running the calculus, but also that there's this like level of power dynamics all the time in terms of gender. It was half a page of dialogue explaining the landlady who's like sort of been described as this drudge this whole time. And like, that was enough. We didn't need anything else. And like, then like moving on. And I think like in those moments, I was like, oh God, this book is so good. But then we pick up all this other stuff and I'm like, oh man, this book feels like it's getting a little bit away from itself. I totally forgot. Lucian is a vet of uh, war. Oh yeah. The boar war. And carries his riding cane everywhere with him in honor of his fellow fallen soldiers. And there's also the fact that Lucian has another lover named Ben, who he met at the pugilist. I think they say boxing at this point. I just want to say pugilist at the boxing gym who has a sick son. And I mean, it like follows all of the threads that it picks out to a satisfying conclusion. I really liked the way Lucian reconciled the fact that he has this sexual relationship with Ben while also being friends with his wife and then learning that, oh, she's actually already accepting of his bisexuality, which is a piece of the HEA that we get. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it follows every thread. The William aspect is maybe the one that I have the most questions about. So Lucian's father is a valet. He's a valet to a lord. The lord's son, William, is chronically ill. And so Lucian is paid by the lord to look after slash valet slash nursemaid slash companion to William. That's part of how Lucian has this incredible uh, education. And that's why he can code switch as easily as he does because he got all of the lessons and all of the food and all of the things that William got. Plus he was also in service to this Lord. And so William's very sick. Lucian visits him every Sunday and like that push pull of class, especially as like William's like, I'll just give you stuff. And he's like, I don't want to be indebted to you, man. I'm already like, whatever. Like that was so intense. And his ability to move, he would spend hours upstairs just reading a book next to Lucian and then go downstairs and watch everyone working really, really hard and do one of those like, oh, can I, I'll just, and like, no one wants his help. Exactly. They're like, put your feet up, guy. You've done enough. Like you entertained the little Lord Fauntleroy enough for us today where we could like read the paper. I don't know that I had read a book that was as good at like pinning down and illustrating the conflicting emotions, love, guilt, and shame as tightly packed as this was without becoming melodramatic. And like, I was trying to think about one of the things, because I think like romance obviously does a really good job talking about sex. It's corporeal, it's fun. Like they do a really good job of putting sex in place where it belongs. They don't always do a good job of that. Not always, but like more often than big L literature. Like that's one of the things. And I was thinking about it because I've tried to think of other places where I have read about the complexities of shame. The shame of like, I'm not working like the whole like, I want to help you downstairs. And they're like, we don't want your help. And so like this like shame of not having place, but also like the shame of like, he resents William, but he also loves William. And like, that's complicated. And like the whole thing that Aubrey has about his own fears. And like, I don't know that I had read a book that like was as explicit about the complications of like those feelings. Like these characters live in their heads a lot when they're not soliloquizing at each other. There's this one scene where like it's night. Lucian had gone to visit William and he hasn't told Aubrey about his relationship with William. So then like Aubrey has this whole thing. He's like, we never said we were exclusive. We never said we were exclusive. And like, that's totally fine. He can have this other lover who buys him clothes. I'm not jealous and I shouldn't be jealous. I want to buy him clothes. I'd make him nice clothes. And then like he just like works himself up over the course of like four or five hours. And then like Lucian comes in like totally deaf and blind to all of this. And he's like, hey, Betty, like how's it going (laughs) that was insane reading those like moves was not enjoyable but like it felt surprising to me well that kind of gets towards my weirdest part but I think maybe we should try to sing for our supper before we get into that okay and tell people that yes 
Womance does have a Patreon. Womance has a Patreon. So, Isabel, what are some of the things that we spend money on here at Womance HQ? Platforms. Yeah, platforms. We have a website where we post blog content. Recently, we did Isabel's favorite romance audiobooks. We had a great piece by Scarlett Peckham. We did a Q&A with the team down at Consensual. And we also host all of our episodes there and share additional resources there. That costs us money. The books we read often cost us money. The subject of this week's episode, we both had to purchase the book for, which is great because we love supporting authors and indie authors. But It costs money to run the podcast. Yeah. And so some of the things we've been able to do because of our Patreon include fancy new microphones. Mm -hmm. We were also able to attend conferences whenever those were still a thing. And we're able to buy books and keep our content fresh and stay responsive and not have to resort to stuff that is always available at the library. So if you like what you hear and you want to help us keep it fresh and you like the sound quality and we do pay for our art, we are trying to live as ethically as possible under the conditions and constraints of capitalism. And if you want to help us in that dream, please. Please sign up for our Patreon. We'd really appreciate it. Patreon.com forward slash womance. Uh, if you're not able to give any money, that's totally cool too. We don't have any special content or anything like that that we would keep from people because they can't pay us. You do get a thank you card and some stickers when you sign up for a Patreon. But other than that, we appreciate the extra cash to help us keep doing what we're doing. All right. Weirdest part. Weirdest part. The amount of dialogue in this book. It is wall-to-wall dialogue. It did get exhausting. (laughs) And I think it's because the characters, there's so many pans on the fire and the author has done such a skillful job of setting up like a reason that everything has to be explained, right? Gender politics have to be explained to Lucian by his co-worker and Henrietta, like the politics of polyamory have to be explained by the perfect polyamorous saint, Aubrey, to every other party in the relationship. Open marriage has to be explained to Lucian by Ben's wife, Kath. Everyone has something that they don't know about, which I think is great. Like there's no like single perfect person. They all learn. They all make mistakes over the course of the book. And, you know, and I think that's awesome to normalize that kind of you don't have to know everything. Like you're going to make mistakes and it's what you do moving forward that counts. And like the effort and the goodwill that you bring to that process. I think that's awesome. But they talk so fucking much. It's quotes on quotes on quotes. And it's just an intense amount of dialogue to read. I know that people are are usually like, you need more dialogue. This book does not have that problem. This is not that book's problem. I agree. There were times where, especially if Lucian was code switching, he sounded a lot like Aubrey and their conversations I'd like have to go back to figure out. Like it was so much dialogue and sometimes like paragraphs of dialogue that like there weren't enough tags so I didn't know who was saying the thing to who and it wasn't always immediately obvious so yeah there's like wall-to-wall dialogue it also kind of demonstrates the fact that just because you're good at making a point and this book is very good at making all of its points it feels like trying to get everything in in one novel and I think maybe letting some of those ideas go to another book or like let some of them breathe you know it's hard to say like lose something when it's all good. Mm-hmm. But I still think this could have done with a paring down of an entire storyline. I think the class stuff was most relevant to the relationship besides just the polyamory. So keeping that and maybe cutting the like aspect of votes for women and suffrage. And moving that to the next book. And like, that's one of the things about romance, not unlike YA, where it's like, you get to have a next book if you want. And it's not that hard to sell it. Cause like, if you've established characters that people care about, they want it. Like I, immediately got done with this book and was like, who is next? And so like, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think the place to cut would be the suffragettes. I'm like just laying enough groundwork to like put them into the next novel and that's fine. Maybe also Ben. Like it was a lot. Ben's a lot. He's a little Bob Cratchity for me. There's a lot and then it all gets worked out through the dialogue and that's why it felt like at times. Yeah. I love dialogue. I love it when characters talk to each other. I love melodrama. You all know this about me. But the thing 
about it being so much is if this exact book had been moved forward in time by a hundred years, I would have hated it because they would have just been preaching at each other. But since like it had the trappings of the Edwardian period, I was like, ooh, and it's like raining and they don't have electricity. And they talked about fires all the time because it was like March. Everything was damp. Yeah, no, it was a lot of talking. Yeah, what was your weirdest part? I've been thinking about this weirdest part. Kind of like last time, I don't think it's particularly weird. It struck discordant with me. This whole thing about Rupert and like the fact that he'd had this sort of unchallenged authority that the other two people who the three of them have communicated well, Henrietta, Rupert and Aubrey, they've communicated well for 15 years. And then suddenly an asshole, a known entity as asshole to them, someone who's been a fly in their ointment for years, like is able to disrupt the water so entirely that like Rupert's like, I'm done with the thruple that we've had for 15 years and I won't talk to either of you about it. I mean, it like made sense that an Earl would be this dictatorial, but it didn't make sense for the relationship that the three of them had built and that Aubrey and Henrietta would accept it. The whole thing about honest communication, the whole thing about meeting the needs of each individual inside the polyamory this doesn't track. And like, I know it's not supposed to track because like, that's the crisis, but like it didn't track with what I had already known about these three people. So then to have the sort of the class be the thing that broke the communication barrier and like created the obstacle. Yeah. That just felt discordant to me. Sexiest part. I want to respond to your weirdest part. Oh, Sure. I did feel like it was always kind of lingering under the surface because, you know, we have that whole one of those times that we don't have dialogue. We get Aubrey's internality. And I think Aubrey is like the central heroic figure in this novel, because even when he's inappropriate, he's so appropriate and so sympathetic. But I think he talks about the fact that he wanted to marry Henrietta, but he didn't get to because he wasn't a duke. And that just didn't make sense. And and he had all of this baggage from Eaton. And I think it was always underlying. And I did kind of like the fact that he kind of got punched in the chin by it. This whole time he had been like displaying all sorts of microaggressions towards Grieve, Mm -hmm. towards Lucian, even though Lucian like always chooses to not pick that battle, which is also interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to have a character in a romance novel know something and choose not to address it because of the blowback. That's true. It was satisfying to me a little bit to watch it be like, oh yeah, Rupert's an asshole. And I think like the book was always kind of like gesturing towards the fact that Rupert's an asshole. He like opens up a book every opportunity he gets. Yeah, like isn't paying attention to them even when they're like asking for it. Yeah, I think it's because he's the most withholding that people are like the most desperate for affection from him. Right, and like his withholding, at least in the first third of the novel, felt like wrapped up in his demisexuality. And like, that's how I felt like I was being led to interpret it. So I was like, is he an asshole or am I an asshole because he's just not interested and there's like something else going on here and so like it was weird to be in the position of Aubrey or Henrietta where it's like I'd made all these excuses for Rupert and he's really just a dictatorial dick who then needs to have his power explained to him and I was like oh it me too (laughs) (laughs) which I think is like one of the things about this book like this book was so good at articulating things like that or like Lucian like he chooses he's like I'm not gonna rise to that bait and like you're the one who's feeling bad and I'm not gonna let you feeling bad make me feel bad and like that was amazing to read in a romance novel in a lot of very particular ways I was just like god especially one that like plays so fast and loose with the dialogue it was interesting (laughs) also felt the need to be restrained at certain times yeah totally so start with your sexiest part because you asked that question very eagerly So I think you want to get to yours. Oh, my sexiest part was also in the first third of the book. It was the scene with the thruple. Yeah, the threesome. Yeah, amazing, long, beautiful. We moved about in the bed a bit. People are, it was great. I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, this is like a very skillful writer at doing action scenes, as we might call them in romance. Yes! 
and you know really deftly handled that and probably my sexiest part as well if I could gesture towards another sexy part it would be when Lucien and Aubrey have had their relations for some weeks now and they have their like set days of the week which is like a very classic polyamory like best practices what Aubrey is doing there of course because I do also want to mention the fact that like I'm talking about people making mistakes and not being perfect but Aubrey is perfect at polyamory like making no assumptions and like totally he's not perfect at being a class actor but he is perfect at polyamory but like you need like the book needed to have a leader here and like yeah yeah (laughs) yeah they needed to have it because I do think that's maybe the project that's closest to this text's heart yeah so they they have like a morning after the first time they've had penetrative sex the book is very good at explaining how anally penetrative sex works It's the morning after and Aubrey bathes Lucien in his little wash basin that he was so jealous of and protective of. It's very erotic, but it's also about like sharing and like a conveyance. I'm very interested in class warfare. Having the experience of watching that breakdown was super satisfying. So satisfying. There's this moment before the wash basin scene where Aubrey's like, I understand that I was a bad actor and like I did the thing that made Lucien feel bad, but now it feels too long for me to apologize for it and I I don't know how to give that space back and be like I felt bad but like now I know better and like that internal struggle is just like totally resolved entirely silently where he just just like we're gonna share it together and here are two washcloths and like let me soap you up that was so deftly done and so warm oh god I love that scene I also appreciate the fact I think you're right in like that sex scene is functioning as and we know this because we have that like internal dialogue of Aubrey, but it's functioning in a way like more than a sex scene or more than a scene of physical intimacy. It works that way. And I just appreciate the fact that like a romance novel is saying like there isn't one way to apologize. Like it's so rare to read something like that. An apology has to come out typically as like a soliloquy, usually in the rain when all (laughs) communication has already (laughs) fallen apart. All the melodrama has happened. No one wants to apologize. No one wants to even say like like what their intention was. Mm-hmm. I liked the fact that it's like, you don't always have to do that. Sometimes you can just show what you feel and what you think and what you've learned through your actions. And that's actually much more powerful, I think, and much more satisfying because I believe Aubrey has changed or taken on board some of Lucian's feedback more than like three pages of dialogue and kissing eyelids as they weep, right? That is less satisfying to me. No, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think like... That's one of those moves because Aubrey's also often portrayed as like somebody who like his vocabulary is often curtailed by like the strictures of his upbringing and his manners. So like he spends so much time in his own brain about like how people don't like him. And like, so then he like trips over his tongue a lot. So like this physical apology of like, look, I'm sharing my basin. Look, I've learned. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like so nice. And he does this thing where like he ignores his parents and his dad like writes him this letter and he's like, we know about you, boy. And like, we love you. Like come to lunch. Yeah. And we'll give you your inheritance without being married. Right. So your brother can't hold it over you and potentially harm you in the future. Which was also so satisfying. So satisfying. The HEAs in this, the way it gets tied up are all very satisfying, including Lucian reflecting on his relationship with Ben. He'd been really scandalized by the idea of Aubrey being a part of a thruple and then also having these dalliances and now wanting a serious relationship with him as well that does not involve Rupert and Henrietta, but also doesn't, you know, mean that they have to be separate or that idea of loving fully and more than one person is is really obnoxious to him. But then he starts to like understand his relationship with Ben. Like it is a friendship, but it's a closeness that also has a sexual component and that doesn't have to end or that doesn't have to reshape any of his other relationships or any of Ben's other relationships because Ben is also very ethical and has been open with his wife because of their shared past in sex work that you learn about that they have, you know, an understanding as well. And I just really like that 
that this novel was willing to talk about all of the different shapes and forms of relationships can take, sexual relationships, romantic relationships. He has a sexual relationship with Ben, but it's not necessarily romantic. Mm-hmm. And that matters. That's true. That's a legitimate way to feel about someone. Sex is a legitimate way to express things other than romantic love. In fact, that's why we do it all the time. And I think this book recognizes that and is also willing to like, you know, open up the palette in this really refreshing way that all expressions of affection are legitimate, right? Like you don't have to do a big elaborate apology. You can just, you know, get an extra washcloth. You also don't have to like be in love with the person you have an ongoing sexual relationship with. It can be something else like a friendship. And I thought that was really great and deftly handled, which in the 21st century, this remains an incredibly complex idea for people. The idea of polyamory. Yes, it does. And like, I think one of the key terms that people kept like throwing onto the road of polyamory and ethical non-monogamy was this idea of like, well, we have a male-male sexual relationship, so I'm not threatening Kath. Like, we don't have to tell Ben's wife because like, I'm not threatening her because what they have is procreative. And then Aubrey is like, doesn't she have to know? Like, just because it's not procreative, like, doesn't mean that they are also having sex that isn't procreative. Like, there's more than one way to, like, have sex. Like, the fact that you assume that, like, just because there is, like, the presence of a vagina and the presence of a penis is, like, it's only doing this one thing when it's, like, it's not. Or the fact that, like, because there's a presence of vagina and a presence of penis that they have to have sex is another thing Aubrey brings up. Right. Aubrey is the paragon of, like, explaining this was, like, pretty funny, but also great. I like the way that, like, people didn't immediately, they weren't like, oh, that's right. I will change my thinking immediately where it's like Lucian had to go home and think about that. And then he had to think about his relationship with Ben. And then he had to have a couple more interactions before he had a conversation with Kath. Yeah. He had to observe Henrietta and Rupert and he had to experience other people's relationships and think critically about his own values in that moment. Right. And like his own hangups and like why he had them. And like this book does such a good job of both making space for the idea that like you can live happily unquestioning yourself and then run into someone or a situation that makes you forces you to question. And like that's good. And you should do that work like this book doesn't lionize, but it it makes space to talk about like the work that we all have to do to think through our prejudices, biases and like our hangups regarding our relationships. Relationships. And it doesn't villainize anything except for not a willingness to do that, right? Which we see with William. Right. Where Lucian finally realizes, like, William's never going to see me as an equal. Like, he's not going to do that work. And so I don't have to do that work for him either. Yes. And that's very liberating. And then, of course, Loden, who is our true villain, is just like a prick who's like hung up on class mores and that's what is allowing him to ruin his own sister in society yeah romance or no man's that's actually tricky because I like talked about how much I liked it but I don't know if this is a book I would I would recommend this book I think people should read this book if only to like open your minds and I'm gonna tell you if you've told yourself like oh I'm open to the idea of non-monogamy I want you to like actually think about that (laughs) and like think about how you would feel if like a friend or a loved one shared that with you or someone approached you to be a part of one of those relationships or like how you limit yourself or punish yourself for thinking about people in ways other than what their delineated role in your life is. Mm -hmm. And thinking about, you know, it's all tied up. This idea of, um, like I said, I'm not, I don't practice polyamory. I have my reasons for not doing it, but none of them have to do with polyamory. (laughs) They all have to do with me. Yeah, exactly. And my own social hangups. Exactly. And I think that if you're belittling people in any framework for the kinds of relationships that they have, like if you're making jokes about like swingers or that kind of thing, like I don't think you really are being open. And honestly, like I think monogamy is a more destructive idea than we give it credit for. Because having this idea that you like hitch your wagon to one person and their needs and their wants, their choices, you have to die on the hill of with them. If you 
feel attracted to other people. That's a weakness. That's bad. As opposed to like, if you lie, like lying is bad. Yeah. Having feelings is hard to police, I would say, is unfair to police. It also boils down to ideas like slut shaming is a part of this. Mm-hmm. Control. Control. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we kind of understand polyamory as like a separate identity and not something that maybe we're all inclined to experience. Yeah, like an identity rather than a spectrum. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I would challenge people to think like, you're probably on the polyamory spectrum. Mm -hmm. Aubrey makes a great point of like, well, families grow love for people all the time when they have new children. And like, why can't you do that for other partners in your life or romantic partners? Or like that friends come into your life and just because like this, like potentially romantic partners have a sexual component, like do you love your friends like any less when you meet a new one? Like, yeah. And so like this idea of expansion rather than like this story of scarcity, that love is scarcity rather than like a constant expansion. Right. I would super duper recommend this book, especially to people who are like, oh, I don't know enough about polyamory or like maybe I have some stuff because like I think this book works as such a good primer because of its applicability. Like it immediately it has like I don't want to call it a sermon, but like, yeah, a moment where it's like, I'm going to teach you the thing and then like immediately applies the values to the situation. But also doesn't limit that lesson to that one encounter, which I think a lot of romance novels actually make. Right. Part of the reason they're irritating is because they're like, here's the lesson and now everything is fixed. And it's like, well, no, it's got to be like an ongoing thing. Right. And like, here's how it looks in this. And like, you know, like here's how it moves or changes based on class or situation or other partners or like, yeah. Right. And you may think that you don't have the space to do that in a romance novel, but this romance novel manages to do that and like eight other things at the same time. So maybe just challenge yourself. And I think you're exactly right. Like this idea of love is scarcity, I think is what the idea of monogamy is like founded upon. And I think it also starts to influence things like racial bias, sexism. I think oftentimes it is a real chicken in the egg. Like, do we have this lived experience because we already have an idea in our head or does the idea come into our head because of a lived experience? And so I think a hugely productive project attempt way of reframing things is to stop understanding love as a scarce resource. If you feel like lonely because you don't have a romantic partner, take stock of all of the other relationships you have in your life that you're successfully managing and maneuvering and take a great deal of care and a great deal of effort. And it's shared. People are sharing that with you, that love. Something you consider. Yeah, let's, you know, think about all the ways in which we are loved and loved and like what that expansion does. And know that you are capable of expansion. Right. Especially in like, you know, a continued like isolating world where like this book was a really good opportunity to talk about that idea where it's like, I think we, especially in traditional romance that isn't, that is like ends with the couple. One of the things that I'm always irritated by is that like the heroine has no friends or like the hero has like one friend. It's like, well, these people only have each other. They're like a universe unto themselves. They're like binary stars. And like this book was so good at creating a universe of a cast where like you interact with them at differing levels and all of those levels are like ripples on your personhood and like what you take in and what you don't is like up to you ultimately and like this idea that like there's more space for you there's more space for love there's more there's more there's more and I just I really loved that I thought this book was a romance 10 out of 10 would do again would recommend yeah don't sell yourself short don't sell the universe short of the kinds of relationships you can have and what you're capable of yeah so I I would also say that this is a romance for me. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts or I think we've said a lot. This actually got quite strangely hopeful <laughs> and rather earnest. Yeah. Yeah. I do think we said a lot. I am going to go ahead and say that this is a classic historical same sex HEA where they're just allowed to retire, fund each other's retirement. <laughs> no, I kind of love that too. You know, it works. Like being in a marriage is being like financially responsible for another person in a lot of ways. Yeah. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. 
That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah.